Guess what, Lions? For as little as $5 a month, you can get access to exclusive bonus audio content and help this program grow by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com support. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, it is time for another edition of Felony Friday right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Felony Friday is a show where each and every single week I focus on exposing injustice in this country's broken criminal justice system. This is one of three shows that we have here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Every Monday, we have a show hosted by Mark Clare, which focuses on interviewing leaders in the liberty movement and also, about once a month, hosting some roundtable discussions. Every Wednesday, we have Electric Liberty Land, your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty, hosted by Brian McWilliams. And of course, every Friday, You get this show right here, Felony Friday. You can get all three of these shows in your podcast feed. All you got to do is subscribe. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. One subscription, three unique shows, the greatest deal in all of Liberty. So be sure to do that. This is the 94th episode of Felony Friday. So that means you'll be able to find links and notes to everything that my guest and I are going to discuss today at lionsofliberty.com slash FF94. My guest today is Jennifer Myers. Jennifer is an author, speaker, federal prison consultant, and advocate for women in prison and youth with incarcerated parents. Jennifer founded L.A. Myers Consulting, which is a prison consulting business that prepares first-time nonviolent offenders and their families for federal prison. She's also the co-founder of Voices of Uncarceration, which is a series of creative storytelling media production projects that bring to light the impact of incarceration on California families. She is also the co-founder of Rise to Empower, which is a nonprofit that empowers girls and young women to make positive choices. Her memoir, Trafficking the Good Life, was a finalist in 2014 at the San Diego Book and Writing Awards, and she's been published in the Huffington Post, among many other places. She's been a panelist speaker with TKF San Diego, Stopping Youth Violence, and speaks to 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th graders about making the right choices. Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on Felony Friday. Hi, thank you for having me. You have quite an impressive bio and a a lot of stuff you're working on. And I I normally don't ask this to my guests, but uh, since there's so many different projects you're working on, and I find myself juggling a lot of different things in my personal life from this podcast to my job to different businesses, how do you stay how do you stay organized with with all that stuff going on in your life? That's a good question. Um, I, I guess I've gotten really good at multitasking, but you know honestly, I think I have a lot of um, support in my life, um, supportive friends, um, people that I collaborate with, and I think that makes it a little bit more manageable. Definitely impressive background and 
you, you didn't really come into this um, by choice. You do have a, you have a history. You did spend some time in prison. So I think that's that's probably a good place to start this conversation. If you could uh, share a little bit about uh, your background, where you grew up, and what led you down this path where you ended up getting ultimately convicted of trafficking marijuana. Right. Well, I, I grew up in the Midwest, um, in Ohio, on a farm, and um, I'm, I'd never been in trouble before. I, I was a cheerleader, captain of my cheerleading squad, was on a gymnastics team, honor roll student. Um, I ended up actually going to college at Ohio State. I I'd gotten into, I auditioned and got into the Ohio State Dance Department. I was a modern dancer, so I um, you know got a degree in dance and choreography from Ohio State. And then I ended up moving to Chicago, where I actually began a career dancing and, and choreographing. Um, for the next four years, I you know, started you know, becoming a pickup dancer with different dance companies. And then we would travel and perform at universities. And then I started um, becoming a guest artist and doing choreography on other companies. At one point, founded my own company for about a year. Um, but, you know, the thing is, modern dance really didn't make a lot of money. So at the same time, I had a full-time job. But it was okay because it was my passion and I loved to dance. Um, at one point, one of my sorority sisters from college introduced me to this guy. And I was probably about 25 at the time. Um, he was a great guy. And she said he traveled a lot. And, you know, she thought he had a lot of money. And, um and he sort of swept me off my feet. I mean, he really was a great person. And um, about three months into the relationship, he divulged to me how he was making most of his money. And um, because he was also a businessman, um, but he was running um, a marijuana trafficking operation. And he was trafficking Mexican weed from Tucson to Detroit. So um, for a while when I was dating him, you know, at that point, I, I obviously didn't decide to leave. I mean, I, I guess I just pocketed it like, well, it's just marijuana. I mean, I, when I grew up, I did, really didn't smoke it much, not even in college, but people did. And I, you know, it felt like it was harmless to me. So I'm like, oh, okay, well, this is sort of like a business and he's making money doing this. And I guess foolishly, I didn't feel really scared or concerned about it. And, you know, ultimately it really didn't take long until I started getting involved. So about three, four months later down the road, or maybe a little bit longer, I started driving um, marijuana with him. And that just sort of set the stage for the next eight years of my life. I mean, amongst other things that I was pursuing in my life, um, the marijuana trafficking was a thread. And it became a trap. I just at some point couldn't even see myself getting out of it because the money was so good. Um, and it was a business. And again, I wasn't doing it because I was smoking marijuana. I was doing it because I was making good money. Um, and the loads got bigger. I mean, we started with like, you know, driving a van with like 750 pounds and it would get bigger where we were then driving, you know, dually double trucks and having a, a matching truck in front and somebody else two hours ahead. And we would be pulling like a race car trailer filled with um, like anywhere from 3,500 to 9,000 pounds of pot. So it really got super big. Um, and I tried to get out of it. And, and in 2002, I did. I moved, you know, I moved around a lot. I moved to San Diego and I began a career in real estate investments. And at that point, I wasn't driving, but I rented a storage unit. Um, in Tucson just to, you know, temporarily have the marijuana stored and then somebody else is going to take it, an Atlas van truck. 
And I got a call two days later or a day later and um, was told that they somebody had been arrested, that when they dropped that load off in Detroit, and, and we were also then dropping off in the Poconos too, but when they dropped it off in Detroit, the SWAT team was waiting and raided the house and arrested somebody. And I was sort what of was, yeah. sorry for interrupting. So what yeah. was the what was the time frame on this? What um, what what years? Um, so I when I was uh, let's see here. So in 2002, I moved to San Diego. So I started trafficking when I was 25. So um, 1992, 1993, something yeah. like that. I started and was involved for you know eight to nine years. So in 2002, somebody got arrested. And um, six months later, I was arrested because my name was on the storage unit. Um, I never used a fake ID. And so I was arrested at the real estate office where I worked. And they took me downtown to the MCI holding facility. And, and I was just in, in shock, basically. Um, I, you know, I had no idea, no idea about the federal you know, mandatory minimum drug sentences. I don't know why none of us did. Um, but all I know, I, you know, it took two, two days for my friends and family to, you know, they didn't even know where I was the first night. And then they had to basically write letters to advocate for me to, to be released on bond because, um, I had a visa for India on my passport that I hadn't used for five years. I never used it, but the prosecutor, you know, prosecutor used that as a reason why I was going to flee, which of course I never would have done that. Mm -hmm. So they finally did release me on bond. Um, and I was released on house arrest. Um, and there's a whole story here, but it took about two and a half years for me to get sentenced. I was looking at 10 years, um, seven with the safety valve, um, unless I cooperated and, I didn't cooperate. I didn't want to cooperate for a very long time. And then finally, my attorney said, somebody's cooperating. They know everything. And if you don't step in, you're going to really, you're going to get screwed. So I ended up cooperating and found out that um, my ex-boyfriend, who, even though we had trafficked marijuana together for eight, nine years, I, I hadn't been with him for a very long time. He actually was married to somebody else. But he had actually turned himself in um, to the government and was wearing um, a wire while they were having conversations all over the place talking about me and was I talking and this and that. So, so he basically got everybody else indicted and cooperated before I did. And then other people were indicted on bribery because they were bribing me to not talk. <laughs> so it's a little bit like a movie, but wow. it was, it was, it was horrible. It was, it was, it was one of the, it was the hardest thing to not know how long I was going to be in. Finally, I was looking at maybe getting three years and I didn't know if I would get that or not, or cause it just kept getting postponed. So it was a lot of unknowns. So ultimately how much time did you end up spending in prison? Well, I, I got a sentence of three years and I spent 17 months in, I was very, very, very lucky. And was that what, uh, what part of the country were you in? I went to Alderson, um, federal prison camp Alderson. So I was in West Virginia. Okay, and that was a, a minimum yeah. security type? It was, prison? it was. Yeah, it was a federal prison camp. So it was the lowest security prison that you could go to. What was that experience like? Um, oh, my God, so many layers and levels about it. I mean, it was a completely different world. I mean, the minute that I was in, I think for the first month I was just in shock. And I think a lot of people are. It takes time to get used to this whole – it's like a whole new little world. Um it was beautiful. The it, We were in the basin of a mountain. So 
what I liked about it is that there was nature. There was, it was a large compound. There was hills up and down, grass, trees. Um, that was a saving grace. Um, it was also really big. So as far as camps go, you know, it could house like 13, 1200 women, but it's always overcrowded. So like 1600 women were on the compound, which made it really challenging that it was bigger because more women means more gossip and more drama and more negativity. And, you know, women are women, whether they're inside or out. So women like to gossip and, and they, and create drama and that happens in prison too. Um, but also I met some really amazing women and I still am friends with women that I met when I was in there. Um, I felt really supported by some of the women inside, but you know, there's, there's not much privacy. Um, it's really noisy. You know, you're living with people, all different social classes all together, you know, and we had cubes with no doors, like in a huge room, 150 women on one floor, you know, and I had the top bunk. So when I sat on my top bunk, I could see the whole span of the room. Um, it was, it was, it was hard. It was hard, but you know, I, I know now, I mean, I'm not going to say it's not like being in a maximum security prison, you know, even one level up, you have controlled movement. And we didn't have controlled movement. We had restrictions. We had boundaries. We had rules. We, you know, we, we were locked down. We were counted in the night. We had standing count just like all the other prisons. But, you know, we could sign out and go two places at once. And then we had to come back in. So you were always accounted for. You, you could you could sign out, but you still had to stay on the, the prison grounds, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, sign yeah. out of your range. So okay, signing out of your every time you left your housing unit, you had to sign out where you're going to be. And you could only be at two different places, and then you would have to go back in and sign back out. And, of course, you know, your day was scheduled. You had your job. You know, there were certain times that you could go eat. It was all it was all a controlled environment. It just wasn't as controlled. Like some prisons have, like, 10-minute movement where you can't move. Doors are locked down, and then you can move again. It wasn't quite like that. So so what did you lean on? What uh, What got you through this time in your life? Mm-hmm. Well, I have to tell you, when I was when I was arrested, I was dating a man at the time that I'd known for a very long time. It was a new relationship, though. His name was Ian. He stuck through this with me the whole entire time. When when I was went into prison, he was my pinpoint person. And you know, I really hope everybody has that person who helps you on the outside with everything, communications, money, everything that you need. And he was right there with me, you know, more than some husbands, you know, stayed with their wives who were incarcerated. So that really was a saving grace for me, you know, let alone I had a few other friends that were there for me. I think personally, I definitely had gone on my own spiritual journey and I had faith and I meditate and I done a lot of consciousness work. And when I was inside, um, if I didn't have those tools, I, it would have been really challenging. And, and those tools gave me strength. Obviously, the, the impact, uh, your experiences in prison have led you down, down a path, uh, a lot of the stuff you're working on today. What have you used, what have you applied from your own experiences to be able to help um, these young women that you're working with today and their families to prepare them um, for going into prison? Well, I think it's it's a lot about, um, there's two different parts here. Most of the women that contact me, and again, you know, it's a little bit different with men. You know, women, you know, are nurturers. They're emotional. They want emotional support um, more than they want um, mental clarity or specific um, questions, like not a formula. So 
I'm really here as an emotional support for them. And I know that they need that. Um, they need to know that they're not forgotten. They need to know that um, they're not, they're going to be okay. So, you know, we start out by, you know, I definitely ask them what questions do they have? And, you know, I answer every question. They want a visual. They want to know, you know, you know, questions that women ask, you know, can you get your hair done? Can you get your hair colored? You know, am I going to be safe? Am I going to be raped? So, you know, just being that wealth of information, um, no question is a wrong question. And, and being that emotional support and helping them to find systems of feeling supported while they're inside and feeling empowered and cutting through the negativity, um, not getting caught up in the drama, um, you know, really when they're inside using that time to think about what they want to create in their lives when they get out, you know, all of those things I definitely implement when I work with, with the offender. Um, as far as families go, they want to know that person's going to be okay and how can they support them best? You know, and since Ian was such a great example, you know, I really utilize, you know, how he supported me in very simple ways, but very specific ways. Um, and to help them understand that, you know, their loved one who's now going to be incarcerated is going to really be leaning on them, that they need that support. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that is really important. I've seen it personally in my own life with a family member going into prison for um, for, for marijuana charges as well. Mm-hmm. And looking at the difference between his experience in, in prison and how family and friends supported him and hearing stories from him of other people uh, surrounding him in prison who or their family wrote them off. And what happens is, obviously, as you know, when people don't have support from family, that's one of the biggest reasons why they end up going back to, pr- to prison, why we have this very high recidivism rate. So that I mean, that is that is so, so crucial. And I'm curious, after getting out of prison, because there's so much you do now today to help people, to help families uh, of people who, who are incarcerated, how, how long how long was the time period between once you got out and when you started giving back? Did you take some time for yourself first or, or was it pretty, pretty immediate? No, um, I really had to take time for myself. Now, when I got out, I was on fire with wanting to help. I remember trying to like, where do I start? I got to tell you, unless you're connected to people, um, it's really hard to, to help. <laughs> um, and you really have to pave your own way. Um, so I, I really needed to get a foundation. And um, when I got out in 2007, it took me at least two years. I had nothing. It was a downturn of the economy. I had no home. I had no car. I had no money. Um, I had family support. That's what I did have. So when people don't have that, I don't know how they make it. But I did take the time, and and that's what's so important, and I want to share with people, you know, women that are inside or men when they're getting out who are so hungry to help unless they're super-duper connected. You know, they need to integrate. You need that time to get on your feet, and it was hard. Um, You know, I would get one job, and then that would fail, and, you know, I had all these dreams about what I wanted to create, and um, I kept believing that it was possible even though I couldn't see how I could do it. But I started writing my book in 2009. took me about a year to figure out how I was going to write it. Um, And then once I got going, you know, I I finally, 2010, found a publisher in 2011 after I finished my book. That book was really the doorway in for me getting more and more and more connected to my giving. Now, before that, though, of course, I started, you know, 
putting together my L.A. Myers consulting business, you know, and that was something that I dabbled here and there in. You know, it was something I wanted to start doing. And when women would contact me, I did a lot of pro bono work. And it was important to me. And it really made a difference. It was so fresh in my mind. I really wanted to help women who were going in um, to not feel afraid. So that was going on. I also connected to a professor at San Marcos University. Jody Lawson was doing a whole bunch of advocacy work. She took me under her wing. Um, she actually got some of my prison writing published in an anthology. You know, she became a close confidant. And then I got connected to um, the Action Committee for Women in Prison in Los Angeles, and I became a board member there. So I was actually helping another nonprofit, a woman named Gloria Killian, who's an exoneree. But yeah, it, it was slow moving at first, and I really needed to get my feet on the ground. So, so with the LA, with the LA Myers Consulting business that you have, what what methods do you use to, you know, to reach out and, and let women know that you're available as a resource, you're available uh, to to consult them? Yeah, you know, to tell you the truth, um, I mean, I have my website and I have my personal website and I talk about what I do with women and sometimes I'll write an article, but women find me. I really haven't done a lot of marketing around it. And just so you know, recent, more recently, I made the decision um, that it's definitely power in numbers. And I really had this strong desire. It just came to me actually two months ago. So I really think I should connect with some men. Like, let's combine our, our efforts here. And so I reached out to Michael Santos, who'd been incarcerated for a very long time in federal prison, and Sean Hopwood, his his partner. Michael's been on this show, and yep. Sean, who, who was just on 60 Minutes, I know. he will be on in, in a few weeks. So Well, wonderful. Yeah, so I contacted him, and he's like, yeah, he goes, well, you know, we're, we're expanding, and, you know, come on and, and, you know, get on, get on as part of our team, and you know, I do my own thing still, but there's also that connection. So um, I'm, I just, you know, I have my bio up on there and, um, you know, people can contact me through them or they can contact me individually. You know, one of the things that uh, I speak with a lot of a lot of former felons who've you know struggled once they've once they've gotten their freedom back, um, finding jobs, getting housing, things like that. So what? What do you think is for for someone out there listening, or I don't know, maybe a, a political change that, that needs to be made? What what do you think is the one thing that we could change as a society in order to help felons get get back on their feet once they get out of prison? Well, I think personally, this is going to be a twisted answer to your question. I I feel like it really starts inside prison, and I think. Personally, um, I'm very much, um, my heart goes into restorative justice, and I think that work needs to happen inside prison. I think we need to um, work in that capacity. I think we need to empower people while they're incarcerated and start doing, you know, having people come in before somebody's getting released and, 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 and have, you know, organizations that really talk to them and plan things out and map out options. I don't think, especially in state prison, um, you know, I'm working inside Donovan Correctional right now. It's not easy. The guys that are going to be getting out soon, you know, have to sort of find their own way, it seems like. I'm like, I don't, who's, why is somebody not explaining that to them? So I really believe in my heart. It really has to happen before they're released to have successful, really successful reentry. 
Yeah, I, I I would agree with you, and I think it's it's maybe even more nuanced than that, probably, because I mean you want to be able to reform people when they're in prison and help them, so when they come out, they have the tools to get back on their feet. A lot of people I talk to, you know, they've been in prison for 10, 15, 20 years. They don't even know how to use a computer. They don't know anything about cell phones or or, or mm-hmm. any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But it, I think it goes back farther. It's a lot of the laws we have where we're locking people in prison like yourself, for these nonviolent drug crimes and fulfilling our prisons with nonviolent people, that's sucking up a lot of the resources. And then there's not enough, not enough resources to reform or help anybody when they come out to get back on their feet. Yeah, no, I believe that too. I mean, I think that's, I was deeply affected when I was inside. I was horrified at the large number of women locked up on these lengthy, nonviolent, mandatory minimum sentences. It was just crazy. And that is what struck a key in me because they were mostly mothers. And I saw how it tore families apart. I'm like, it's like they were just locked away and forgotten for what? For, you know, for a nonviolent drug crime. And it's true. Um, and that definitely, those, those, that needs to shift. I mean, of course, there's so many different details. Yes, sentencing laws. I mean, where do you attack first? I mean, I'd like to work on more of a larger paradigm of the system, again, changing the mentality of it. Um, But the men I work with inside Donovan, and I'm going to say this, yes, it's violent crime. But I was shocked to find out about when I did that we did a TEDx inside Donovan prison, and it was amazing. I went into prison for the first time three months ago or back in April, and I never thought I'd love working with men. I adore working with men in prison. Their hearts are big. They're doing the work. And, you know, yes, we're working with the cream of the crop. Um, but these are good guys. And these are guys that have been locked up for 20, 30 years or more, some as juvies, who made one wrong decision. And they're just locked up. It's a waste. I'm sorry. I just don't agree with it. Yeah, it's it's absolutely crazy. And it's it's crazy that... I guess because it doesn't affect people's lives, like so many things, you know, people have tunnel vision, they're, they're focused on their job, their family, and a handful of, handful of other things that they, they don't see this injustice happening all around them. They don't see lives being ruined, families mm-hmm. being ruined. So I'm, I'm not sure how to how to shift that and how to make that shift. I think that the work you're doing is is fantastic to get people ready for prison. And I I do want to ask you about, you also have other things you're working on too, this rise to empower. Can you tell us a little bit about what, uh, what that nonprofit is and what it does? What's the, what's the intention? Yeah. The intention basically is to empower teen girls and women coming out of prison to make positive choices. Um, and, and that's sort of a big positive to me. I don't really agree with that word, more conscious choices. Um, it's an empowerment program and it's deep work. It literally, when I met my partner, we didn't know where we were going to work first. We thought we were just going to use our books and, and have a book club or something. And literally we just channeled a whole three month program. It's a whole workbook. Um, and, um, it's three months long. They work it, you know, four days a week. We come in or have other people come in and facilitate one day a week for an hour and a half. Um, the women take a look at their lives all different pockets, teen girls or women, it's the same work. And and they go deep and, and it works. We just actually um, finished our first program with US San Diego probation. They started a new re-entry initiative, brought our program in, and we worked with women coming out of federal prison, high-risk caseloads. The women um, really shined. They did the work. Some women left. 
you know, it was hard, hard for them to confront what was going on. But, um, you know, we're meeting with them again in two weeks and we're getting looking to get funding for our next program because we got a lot of positive feedback from probation, supervisors, federal judges, things like that. So, yeah, we work with teen with um, with with uh, teen moms, homeless teens. But our focus really right now, I mean, working with women coming out of federal prison as they were in halfway house. Getting out, you know, most of them were mothers with children, getting jobs, getting housing. They came in twice a week to the federal building and worked this program and worked it on their own, and they stuck with it. So, again, we're back to empowering. You know, the hope came alive in their eyes. You know, they were they felt they were filled with shame before, and now all of a sudden they're like, no, I can do this. I can do it. Somebody believes in me, and I believe in me. That's, that's so fantastic because probably a, a lot of these young women – They've never had that had that voice, that voice of support behind them, telling them that that you know they they can accomplish things, that they they should have hope. So that I mean that is that's phenomenal work. I, I want to ask you, you about this uh, th- this other thing you're working on, which seems seems really exciting and I, I think probably has has some potential here to, to really make a big impact. This voices of incarceration, a series of creative storytelling and media production projects. Yeah. yeah, that was something where I came together with a nonprofit called Survivor's Truth, um, founded by Doug Presnell and um, Tish Soberg, which is from Expressive Arts San Diego. We came together in 2004, and uh, we started working with the San Diego Juvenile Court and Community School System, which we also have done Rise to Empower with. Uh, and we worked with a group of kids. We work with a group of kids inside, and we also worked with women at Serenity House, who are at a halfway house coming out of um, county jail. And we do workshops where, you know, we do combine it with creative art exercises um, and processing and videoing. And we end up creating a project, which is a video project and art um, and, and having them express what the system's like, what, you know, how it should change, you know, they are the voices affected, just like it says to advocate for change. So, you know, one example is the kids in um, the San Diego Juvenile Court and Community School System that we worked with. It was around incarceration and parents that were incarcerated. And, you know, what they came up with was a tagline of, you know, I deserve, you know, I deserve to be treated with respect. I deserve to not be judged, um, you know, by my color. I, I deserve tolerance. You know, I deserve to have um, a happy child, you know, all of these. It was so beautiful. And so it's like mini media projects. And then we can get them out more into the world. And I think we need, you know, we're thinking of different ways that we can grow that right now. We've, we put that aside. It's sort of incubating at the moment. But, um, you know, we had a, had a whole art show around it where we showcased the media, um, prison art, um, and had the women come, um, and it was really powerful. People were really affected, and this is what this is about: starting that conversation around what's really happening with incarceration, which I think is where change can start. We need to start a dialogue. Yeah, that's that's so important. Putting putting a face out there that people can see, people can relate to, to see the people that are being harmed uh, by these policies. I, I, so I think that's phenomenal. And I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, Jennifer. We are running out of time. Before I let you go, can you please let the Felony Friday audience know where they can find everything that you're working on, where they can buy your book, and where they can learn more about you? 
Yeah, definitely. My book is on Amazon. They can find it, Trafficking the Good Life. Um, it's also available on my website, jennifermyers.co. C-O, and that is where you can read about me and see what I'm doing and what I'm up to. And that's where you can get my email address and phone number or go to risetoempower.org. Well, that is awesome, Jennifer. And I will <laughs> link to all, all the stuff you're working on on the show notes page as well to make it easier for people to find. Thank, Thank you so you. much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Bye. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Felony Friday with Jennifer Myers. I'm going to keep the conclusion here super brief because my daughter is asleep right now. I'm in the room right next to her and I don't want to wake her up. Um, We've been having some trouble getting her to fall asleep. So I don't want to be the one to wake her up. So I'll just say a couple things. If you guys enjoy what we're doing here at Lions of Liberty, please consider joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. We have a lot of exclusive content that we offer in the Lions of Liberty Pride. We have a conspiracy theory roundtable, which a new one will be publishing here in the next week. I think the focus is going to be on the Las Vegas shooting, uh, among other things. And you can get access to all of that exclusive content for just $5 per month. We also have our Degenerate Gamblers Roundtable, where myself and Rico and Brian McWilliams place fake bets every week on college football and NFL games. We also have just random stuff that we put up. I did an extra Is It a Crime with Remzo Martinez last week. So for five bucks a month, you get all that. Ten bucks, you get a free t shirt as well. And 25 bucks, you get. Two free t-shirts, free koozie, and you get a monthly conference call with us. But the most important part of all of this is it helps us to expand the show, grow the show, and upgrade our equipment. So please consider joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. You can do so by going to lionsofliberty.com support. And that's all I got, guys. I'm not going to go into anything else. I'm just going to leave it right there. I want to thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for your continued support. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.